Hey everybody, welcome to the Week in Film Tech for September 13th, 2019. September 13th is very important because we have some embargoed news, so that's why we're late this week. It's planned lateness. We've got some embargoed news from Sony, the Canon C500, a whole passel of stuff out of IBC, gear cage update, and hey professor, all that on the Week in Film Tech for September 13th, 2019. So, some of you guys who are regular listeners and usually listen on Thursday might have noticed we're dropping on a Friday this week. That is a planned drop. Sometimes podcasts drop late accidentally. This is planned. The reason why this is planned is last week I went to the Sony offices in Midtown Manhattan, and I got a sneak peek, along with a bunch of other journalist types, of the new Sony announced today FX9 camera. And because the embargo is for September 13th, I wanted to be sure and talk about it this week. So we're releasing the podcast a day late so I can talk about the FX9. The FX9 is the update to the FS7. And the FS7, which you guys I'm sure all know, but if you don't know the FS7, the FS7 has been a very, very, very popular camera in the 4K cinema space. Now, you're going to hear a lot of people say things like, well, FS7 is great, but like I'd rather go out with an A7S2 or whatever and get that great low light. And that is sort of a thing. However, the FS7 is really bringing a lot of that, like, kind of technology, 4K, uh, variable ND, and it's a seamlessly variable ND where you can, like, rack the aperture and the ND identically to each other and things like that. So there's a lot of this, like, really neat tech, but it's in a really filmmaker-friendly package. So if you've ever tried to shoot with an A7S or, you know, any of those little mirrorless cameras, you're always like, I gotta buy a cage, and then once I have a cage, I gotta have, like, an adapter for audio inputs, an adapter for this, an adapter for that. The FS7 is the all-in-one package that you're gonna see a lot of professional filmmakers use. You're gonna see it a lot on broadcast networks, you're gonna see it a lot on, like, indie film shoots, documentaries, things like that, because it's a really ergonomic, shoulder-mounted body that rolls all of Sony's technologies into a single package. The FS7 Mark II came out three years ago. We've been sort of waiting to see if there would be a Mark III now would be around the time to do it. But, and actually, I want to say one more thing. It's E-mount, the FS7 platform. And E-mount is Sony's proprietary mount for uh, mirrorless cameras. It is, and E-mount lenses are designed to cover full frame. Because like the Sony A7S, full frame E-mount, right? So you need those lenses that cover full frame. However, you can also get Sony lenses that only cover the APS-C, the smaller Super 35 size sensor, and the FS7 have that smaller sensor. It's a mark of, the FS7 was a huge hit. It's, like, hard to really absorb what a big hit that camera was. But I'm going to give one example of how big a hit that camera was. So Fuji came out with these lenses. I love them. The MK zooms, they're great. They're parfocal zooms for 3,000 each. I think they're really beautiful. Big fan of those lenses. Fuji came out with these lenses, the X, the MK zooms. Fuji has a lens mount, the X mount. There's also the MFT mount, the, like, open source mirrorless mount. Instead of going out with either of those... When they first came out with the MK zooms, they came out in the E-mount. And they were very public. They were like, FS7's a hit. We want lenses that fit the FS7. We feel like that's the natural place for these lenses. And it was like a year before it came out in MFT, and then another year after that before they came out in X. E-mount is a very dominant thing because of the FS7, and it is a huge uh, thing to pay attention to there. So the successor to the FS7 has just been announced, and it's the FX9. And so they did the FS7 one and then the FS7 Mark II. You, they could do an FS7 Mark III, but it's deliberate, I think, that they've changed the name. And the reason they've changed the name is it's now a full-frame camera. So this is a $10,000 camera, FS7 body style, so like shoulder mount, ergonomic, E-mount, with all of the stuff you're used to from an FS7. So even though it's a full-frame sensor, they still have an internal 
dynamically variable and defilter, which is super useful if you're shooting run and gun, documentary style, news. I'm going inside, I'm going outside, I don't want to pop a filter on. Like, it's becoming a killer feature that everyone really wants. All in one $10,000 body. Now, is the sensor going to be dramatically better than something like the, like if an A9 II comes out or the A7R4 that just came out? Like, it'll be equivalent. It's in a body that's going to be really useful for filmmakers with full-size XLR mounts. And, you know, it, it's in a nice sweet spot where you can get an adapter plate to use V-mount batteries, but it actually uses smaller, sort of like more friendly batteries. There's a whole lot of nice things going on in there. And then the exciting thing about it, a big part of their push here, is they're also rolling out a line of cinema lenses, the G Masters, and some cinema zooms. And even though they're cinema lenses, they're built for autofocus. You can switch autofocus off and there's repeatable focus. Usually you have a lens where it's either repeatable focus and it never works with autofocus, or free-flowing focus, you know, like a Canon L, where the focus ring just spins infinitely, and it doesn't work with autofocus. These are lenses... Repeatable focus, when autofocus is off, autofocus enabled. And we're talking about face tracking, eye tracking autofocus. I'm not the world's biggest lover of Sony's color reproduction. I really like the color in the FS5 Mark II. I got to shoot that last summer, and I thought it was a real leap forward. I saw a bunch of test footage from the FX9, and the greens still look a little Sony to me. Look, it takes two seconds to fix that in color grading. I'm not saying that that's a deal breaker. I just wish the greens looked a little less Sony green to me in the test footage we saw. Sony is not my number one choice of camera, usually. I tend to shoot a lot more Panasonic, a lot of Fuji, obviously, airy when the budget allows. But uh, but I've shot some, uh, some Sony in my day, and Venice looks really nice, and FS5 Mark II looks really nice, and I think the FX9 is going to look really nice. But I have to give credit where credit's due to Sony. Their autofocus is insane. On the Alpha 9, and it's the same tech from the Alpha 9 that we're seeing in the FX9, I think the, the dual 9s there are no accident. In the Alpha 9, that autofocus is ridiculous. That autofocus is to the point where filmmakers should be considering using it for a lot of situations. Obviously, when I'm on a big shoot where I've got first AC and second AC and loader and the first AC has a wireless unit and whatever, then no, you're not going to use it. But there are a lot of little shoots where that autofocus is going to really take care of you. And I've been very impressed with the Alpha 9 autofocus. And if that technology is now in a cinema camera and there are cinema lenses that can support that technology where you can switch it between repeatable focus mode and follow focus mode and it's using that Alpha 9 tech, the FX9 is a really interesting camera, in my opinion. Which follows up on what I was originally going to be talking about this week, which is the C500 Mark II. If you guys don't know the Canon cinema line, they've been around a while, eight years or so. C100, C300, C500 were the the launch bodies. The original C300 was used to shoot blue as the warmest color. They're, you know, that sort of signature Canon cinema body design. The C200 has been very popular as sort of like an affordable dock camera with really great autofocus. The C700 is the top of the line. It's got all sorts of extra PowerPoints, ports on it, and all of that stuff. And now... We have the C500 Mark II. The C700 came out, and then we later had a C700 full frame, the C700 FF. The C700 is very expensive. I think it's like $25,000. I don't actually remember how much it was. The C500 has always been sort of like at the reach of affordability. The C500 Mark II is out now, and it is a full frame camera, and it is an interchangeable mount camera. You can put EF or PL on here. Now, what's interesting about that is actually the E-mounts, on the FX9 is actually super adaptable to either PL or EF. There are even 
hot mounts where the EF data will pass through. I doubt it's going to work with the autofocus. I doubt you're going to be able to take like a $200 Canon lens and have it work with the Sony autofocus. That would be surprising. But you might be able to, there might be like a Sigma lens. Sigma updates quite a lot. And they don't, Sigma doesn't feel like they are competing with Sony in the camera body market. So they might be more willing to work on that support. Canon, EF, PL. There's going to be no RF. My first question I asked when I was on a call with them was RF. RF is the shower, shallow or mirrorless mount because of some internal things going on in the imagery. You're not going to be able to do that. $15,000. And honestly, I'm having a really hard time. I could probably find a spec or two to justify why you might go C500 Mark II over FX9. Canon's color science is one of them. I mean, Canon is the look of YouTube. If you are shooting a YouTube series, Canon is definitely the look of YouTube. But you could probably build a lot to make Sony look like Canon YouTube at YouTube resolutions, or at least to like tone down those greens. And there's beautiful stuff shot on Sony all the time. And there's a lot of documentaries on the internet shot on the Sony FS7 and the FS7 Mark II that look gorgeous. I think Sony is really stomped on Canon's thunder. I think the C500... Mark II had a real potential to be like an affordable full-frame cinema camera, a $15,000 cinema camera, full-frame that like we can get our hands on that has workflow that feels really tested. And I think the FX9, especially FX9, if it has the autofocus we're hoping it's going to have at $10,000 as a price point for body only, is a real killer. So well done, Sony. What's interesting is in this three-horse race, where's Panasonic? Panasonic has the full-frame sensor. They have the S1H. The S1H is out in the field shooting full-frame video. We know they know how to build camera bodies, right? Veracam, uh, Veracam LT, beautiful bodies, EVA1. Even if it were eleven or 12000 even if they couldn't quite match Sony on price, if there was like a EVA1 full-frame or a Veracam LT full-frame in the eleven dollars to $12,000 bracket, I'd be really happy to see that. And I'm a little bummed we don't see that. I feel like, look, I obviously am partial. I shoot a lot of Panasonic. I really like their color reproduction. But yeah, it's a frustrating situation to be in right now to watch them sort of whiffing on this a little bit. Whiffing is the wrong word. I mean, Panasonic is a huge company. They make a lot of gear. They have many clients. There are many clients who will wait on them. EVA1 hasn't really been the hit we were all thinking it might be, but... You see them around. You're starting to run into them in the field. And absolutely, the S1H is going to be a hit. Reviews are really stellar. I think we're going to start seeing those a lot in the field. I bet by next year's IBC, we're going to have that. Which is the perfect transition to talking about more IBC news. So IBC is the International Broadcasters Convention in Amsterdam every September. So NAB in April, IBC in September are the two big trade shows. And again, if you can, go. I've never been to IBC. I keep meaning to go, but I teach and it's usually the beginning of the semester. So it would be hard. But one of these days, I'll have a reason to go to IBC. I almost went this year. And then NAB in April, it's usually easier. I can usually tack it on a spring, spring break trip out west. If you can, you want to go to these things because it's good to meet vendors. It's good to talk to people. I love the trade shows that are in a town you don't live in because you're more likely to hang out with everybody after. This IBC has been a really good one. There's been a, re a few really cool things rolling out of this IBC. So we're going to start at this IBC talking about Sigma. I've shot a bunch on the Sigma uh, Cine Primes. I like them for their affordability. Are they everything the Signature Primes are? No. Can I buy a full set of uh, Sigma Cine Primes for the price of one Signature Prime? Sure. One of the Signature Primes is like $34,000, and the Sigma Cine Primes are about $3,500 a pop, so you can get seven of them for $21,000 and have enough room left over to buy a Miata. For their price, they are stellar. There are a couple of things you're going to get if you bump up to real cinema lenses, because these are still lenses rehoused in cinema bodies. But 
They're really nice. They're really nice. So they just came out with two new innovations, one of which I'm super excited about, the other of which is like almost exciting, but frustrating. First big innovation is you can now buy what they're calling like a classic look, and it's uncoated lenses. And I actually saw a couple of reviews talk about this, and they were like, uncoated lenses and slower aperture, what's going on? So I feel like even among people who write lens reviews, there might be some confusion about this. So let's talk a little bit about lens coatings. So there are lens coatings that make your lens faster. I know, it seems crazy. When we're talking about fast lens, we're talking about how uh, how wide the aperture opens. But we're not just talking about how wide the aperture opens. We're talking about how much light makes it through the lens. So think about it like this. I have a lens, and I've gone wide open on the aperture, right? And we're going to talk in T-stops here, not F-stops. F-stops are the mathematical relationship. F-stops are like a physical measurement on the lens. T-stops, tested stops, are measuring how much light gets through the lens. So let's think of a, a common example. I have, you know, I've opened my aperture to the widest T-stop, T2, let's say, on this lens. Light going in is 100 photons of light, and light going out is 90 photons. So the lens has eaten 10 of the photons of light. Light lenses eat a little bit of light. That's part of the nature of lenses. Every time light passes from substance to substance, when it goes from air to glass or glass to glass or through certain coatings, a little bit of light is lost. It's usually lost to reflectivity. Not all of the light makes it through. Some reflects back, right? So we say 10% is reflected back. Starting in the uh, 40s, largely driven by Caltech, and uh, some other researchers other than Caltech, but Caltech was big and innovative. Greg Toland was a little bit involved in the early development of lens coatings. Lens coatings, what we also sometimes call anti-reflective coatings, turn down that reflection. So instead of 90% of the light getting through, maybe 95% of the light gets through. Because instead of reflecting 10% back, only 5% is getting reflected back. So I have that same lens at that same f-stop, f2, but instead of 100 going in and 90 getting out, 100 going in and 95 go out, which effectively makes the lens faster. It's T-stop, it's tested stop is faster. So lens coatings were originally invented in order to let more light make it through the lens in the process. Now, it's weird because a lot of people associate like uncoated lenses with the 70s, but like lens coated started in the 40s, right? You're not going to see lens coatings on like news cameras from the 40s, but like motion picture lenses by the 40s. Citizen Kane, I think, was shot on an early version of coated lenses, although don't quote me on that. And if I'm wrong, hit me up on Twitter. But by the late 40s, early 50s, we had coated coated lenses. However, lens coatings keep getting better. A lot of research goes into this. A lot of optical research is going on. Lens coatings keep improving over time. So a lot of people, uh, when they're talking about an uncoated lens, they are talking about something where, because it's unco- uncoated, there is a different personality, right? It's going to feel differently in uncoated lens. The image is not going to reproduce the same way, but it doesn't always feel 70s. Sometimes it feels 50s. Sometimes different, you know, different glass has a different feeling as well. So they're now releasing the Sigma Cine Primes. I think it's called Classic. I think they're called the Classic Primes. And uh, no coating. Because there's no coating, the fastest T-stop is going to be much slower. Because more of that light is going to get eaten in the lens. Because the purpose of the coating is to let more light through. And without the coating, the lens is going to reflect more light back, letting less light through. So you're going to have a, a less aggressive widest aperture. However, if I'm shooting on a Veracam with a native ISO of 5,000, and I can crank it to 5,000, I 
I rarely shoot much wider than a 2.8 if I can avoid it. I like a 2.8 because it gives me a little depth of field, especially on a full-frame sensor, so I have the opportunity. I will only shoot at like a 1.4 when I absolutely need it for a night exterior where I have not enough units and I'm trying to like capture a big cityscape or something far out there. If I can avoid it, if I have the units I need, 2.8 is usually the widest aperture I tend to shoot. So if I liked the look of the classic lenses, it's really exciting that they're now giving us this other option from Sigma. The other thing Sigma did at this IBC is they're now offering slash I versions of their lenses. So what is slash I? Slash I was originated by Cook. There's an Airy system called LDS, but you really tend to only see that on like Airy camera bodies and Airy lenses, like Master Prime, stuff like that. I think red cameras can also read LDS, I think. The more common format is slash I, the Cook format. That's also very open source. You see it other places. Most red bodies can read slash I. Most camera bodies, most big cinema camera bodies can read slash I. Slash I data encodes focus iris and zoom data from the lens. And it wraps it up into the camera file and a metadata file. And this is really exciting for VFX workflows. Because think about it like this. You have a shot of me. Right. And then you're trying to put a gorilla in behind me or whatever with VFX and you want to, and on set, you rack focus from me to the person standing behind me with, you know, in a green suit or whatever, pretending to be a gorilla and then back to me. You're going to want to recreate that focus rack later on in fair, in uh, fusion or in nuke. You're going to want the fake gorilla you put in to have the focus rack on them in sync with the focus rack in camera. Now you can, do this by hand, watching the focus rack change in the shot and then recreating it with keyframes. But if you can just get the lens data, you can perfectly match depth of field so that it, it really helps me and whatever you're compositing me against feel much more organically tied together when you have that focus iris and zoom lens data. Previously, there's not really been like an affordable lens set with slash I. Now, right now, I actually don't know how expensive slash I is going to be. I also... One part of their announcement said if you've already bought lenses, you might be able to upgrade them to slash I, which would be really cool. Um, it makes sense for Sigma to do this. A lot of these types of things are already built into a lot of Sigma still lenses and, you know, encoders and data are not actually that complicated for a still lens manufacturer. In fact, at some point or another, I saw an EVA1 with a Sigma Cine, Pro, Sigma Cine Zoom in EF mount and the EF mount was passing data to the EVA1 when you focused and zoomed. You could see the number readout change on the EVA1 monitor. So in EF mount, this has already been working, although the EVA1 didn't have any way to record that data. Um, it would be really nice if it did. It might now. It didn't at the time. Um, so it's really exciting. So why am I a little bummed? Well, I'm a little bummed because they also came out with an L mount to PL mount adapter which is great. They're supporting the L-mount. Panasonic's part of the L-mount alliance. Big L-mount fan. I'm suspecting that if Panasonic comes out with a medium format with a full-frame cinema camera sometime in the next year, it'll probably be L-mount. It makes the most sense for Panasonic. The S1H is L-mount. But it's a... So they have this L-mount to PL-mount adapter now, but it's a dumb. It's just mechanical. It doesn't pass any data through. And how cool would it be if Panasonic were the first people to offer this workflow in an affordable place where either they're full-frame Vericam, full-frame EVA1, or even the S1H could record that data. So if I had like a, a Sigma Cine Prime with a PL mount adapted to an L mount, I would get that data passed through. That would be cool. I would be so excited about that. Uh, and it would record it as some sort of sidecar metadata file that you could bring into Fusion or you could bring into Nuke. And then automatically, bam, the shot's focus, iris, and zoom information 
which is going to model that depth of field and it's going to model all of those changes in depth of field just come right in the shot and then all of a sudden your composites get like 15 times easier or maybe not 15 times but it's easier vfx people like that kind of data so i was a little bummed it was a dumb mount i was really hoping when i saw uh elda pl adapter i was like "Ooh, this is going to be a, a smart adapter not quite there but knowing sigma if panasonic comes out with a camera that can receive that data I bet we see a smart adapter that lets us have it. I'm also excited. I'm personally very curious uh, to see if Sigma, uh, what the pricing is on upgrading a current Sigma Cine Prime set to slash I. Further on in IBC news. All right, I'm just going to say it. There's IBC news I'm kicking to next week. The Roto light deserves to be talked about. Irix's new 11 millimeter prime deserves to be talked about, but we're running out of time here on the show. I don't like to go forever, and there's a couple other things I want to talk about this week. So we are going to kick those two to next week. I'm going to talk about one more thing. I've got to talk about this new light called the Airy Orbiter. The Airy Orbiter is Airy's new punchy LED. So Airy really is like, at the high end, the dominant big soft panel LED maker. The sky panels, the 120, the 60, you see them everywhere. They're on every shoot. They have an amazing app, the Stellar app, for controlling everything you want. They are really phenomenal. But they haven't had a punchy light, you know what I mean? A, a light that's designed to compete with something like, uh, you know, an M18 or like a punchy sort of HMI light that's like designed to like kick off a backlight from 20 feet away. Sky panels are soft. They're big, soft panel lights. So the Orbiter is Aerie coming in and doing an LED. And because it's LED and because it's specifically a six-hue LED, it's not just RGB. They have six different colors in the bulb. Hive also had a six-color LED, so it's interesting. I don't think – I think this is moving in a little bit on Hive's territory. Hive doesn't have anything quite this powerful, although Hive's working on something this powerful. And the unit Hive is coming out with uh, the 575. They showed it at Cinegear. Actually, I need to look at specs. I think – I think the Orbiter is still a little more powerful than the 575. It's six bulb. I've been really happy with the color reproduction of the Hive. It's been a real pleasure to work with. And this is going to be a little more expensive than the Hive. But six bulb, so it can reproduce anything in the full Kelvin, color temperature spectrum, RGB, all of those things. Zero to 100 dimming, that's all great. All of the things you expect from LED are there. And it's a totally swappable system. So you can put light boxes right on the front of it. You can put, you know, parabolic, like, Leco-style adapters right on the front of it. You've got all of the spreads of Fresnel-type things right on the front of it. So you have a lot of light control built into this very flexible front unit. You have a lot of light control built into all of the basic things you're used to, like color and timing like that. The coolest thing about the Orbiter is that it's like a curb stomp on all of their competitors. Airy basically were like, let's put every feature you want into a light. So there is a color temperature meter built into the top of the unit that is going to read ambient light temperature. So if you're out there and you're shooting a day exterior interview and you're using this as your key light and then clouds move in front of the sun so the background gets darker, your light will also get darker. You can sync it up to the ambient lighting, which is something I've been talking about since NAB 2016. And it's just like built right into the unit. There's also like a whole control panel running LOS, lighting OS, that you can work with remotely or you can leave attached to the back where you can animate your light. You can integrate it with Stella. Stellar, you've got all of that kind of data plugged in. You have XLR, DMX, you have Ethernet DMX, you have USB, you have all of the connectors you could ever want. You also can run a sync cable to your camera. So if you're doing like flash effects and you want those flash effects to be in sync with the camera shutter, you can sync the camera to the unit. 
which is super cool. So you have all of these things together and more. They have like basically an accelerometer and all of the sort of iPhone type data recorders in there. So, you know, pan, tilt, rotate, all of those recorders that like your iPhone can record in order to do orientation and stuff. That recorder is in the light unit and it can record all of that data for playback later and a magnetometer. So it can tell what way it's pointing. Like, is it pointing North? Is it pointing South? There's big applications in this for like when I'm working, when I'm like building the lighting for a stage show or something, but there's also VFX applications for this, right? So now all of a sudden you could have like matching lighting between the composited plate in the background and what's happening in the foreground is often really difficult. So if I had a scene where the director was like, okay, it's just going to be an actor against green and, uh, and then the green, we're going to green background this like moonscape. And I want to do a light that like flashes on the actor's face and then off. It's hard to do because you flash that light on and off on the green screen shoot. And then the VFX artists have to paint that in, in the background and they're looking at details in the shot and trying to match it here. I just use the orbiter and I record pan, tilt, and zoom, you know, and then I have all the pan, tilt, and zoom data for my light. And then I bring that in and I plug that in to control a digital light in my uh, compositing application. And I have a digital light that is going to be perfectly in sync with the light that's happening on the subject because I recorded the physical movements of the light. So VFX folks are going to really love this. I don't know that there's any VFX platform that works with that data yet. I don't know how it's being recorded, but since DMX and, and uh, Ethernet and USB and, and Light OS are all built into this unit, I have a sneaking suspicion Aria is already working on that. They don't tend to roll out stuff that isn't ready for prime time. So the Aria Orbiter is huge news. There's other huge news out of I IBC, but I think this is the unit. This is like the big headline for me this week, which is why... Uh, we talked about it on this week in film tech. So next week in film tech, we're going to have a bunch of headlines that are going to be like other stuff from IBC that's interesting, which is good to know. But those are those are the headlines this week on the week in film tech. So Gear Cage, we're skipping Gear Cage this week. You guys did speak out on Twitter. I really appreciate that. And you were like, keep Gear Cage. So I appreciate that. We're totally going to keep Gear Cage. We're skipping it this week because there's so much IBC news. Next week, we will be back. Gear Cage, I think I'm going to talk about the Pavo light from Nanlite because um, I've been playing with it and I'm a big fan. The app is not great, but I don't care. All right, moving on to Hey Professor. Taj LeBlanc asks, can you talk more about iPhone RAW? Which is a good segue into the entirety of what we're talking about here. So Taj was actually saying, hey, you offhandedly mentioned maybe Apple would do iPhone RAW later. And Taj also, I think, shoots everything on iPhone now. So here's the reason why I sincerely doubt iPhone RAW is going to be a thing anytime soon. And the reason why is, first off, they're in that red versus Apple patent battle, which would make it really hard for them to do because they'd have to pay a license fee every time they did it. So unless they win that patent battle with red, there's no way you're ever going to see iPhone RAW because they don't want to pay a license fee for every iPhone they make. They like fighting license fees. So I don't think that's likely. I also don't think it's likely because most of what Apple does when working on the iPhone is they are working on making the response time to a quality image faster, right? If you look at the announcement this week, if you guys didn't see the announcement this week, they came out with the iPhone 11 and the iPhone 11 Pro. They are all built around a new three-lens system. The three lenses are pretty good. Uh, one of them is beyond a two. One of them opens at a two. Like, they'll be really good in low light. There's image stabilization. there, And they're really built around making your images better faster, 
because they really want to get to that point where as fast as possible, they're taking all that raw data and processing it into something usable. Now, already Filmic, who are a really cool app maker, I interviewed their CEO earlier this summer, it'll run on the site eventually. Filmic are a company that are devoted to making the most of your imagery from Apple, right? They're like, ooh, you have this amazing sensor there. What what can we do to turn off all your internal processing? Because like Apple puts a lot of internal noise correction on that I, I never like. Filmic is like, let's get in the earliest possible part of the signal path and just get the signal unprocessed and find ways to record it for you. Um, makes for bigger files. And in fact, the Filmic update for the iPhone 11 Pro is really cool because there's three cameras on there and it'll let you record two angles at the same time. So the wide and the close can both get recorded with the new Filmic Pro update, which is super cool and says a lot about how much Filmic is really able to get earlier in the image pipeline because it's very much not what Apple is designing the iPhone to do. But Apple's putting all their effort in to making the best looking thing the fastest using all of those lenses and multiple exposures and multiple different AI techniques to make it so when I click a photo, it always looks as close as possible to good, even if that means sacrificing like technical perfection, throwing out information I might want later. So it's like the philosophical opposite end of the spectrum of what RAW is about. RAW is about saying, all right, I'm going to do all my work later. Give me as much data as possible and let me think about it more later. iPhone engineering is all about, I'm going to process this data as quickly as I can to try and get it to something that is acceptable for like social sharing and family. It's different design philosophies. So beyond the patent war, I mean, the patent war is the main reason I think we'll, we're unlikely to ever see raw f officially from Apple in the iPhone. And I don't think filmic will even be able to get their hands on data that they could create raw from. Um, maybe they are, maybe they're that early in the pipeline, but also, I think the files would end up being pretty big. Aside from that, I don't think we're going to see raw on the iPhone because it's just such a philosophical difference in all of the technology and what the technology is trying to do. The vast 99.9% .9 of people who create imagery with their iPhones want that image in seconds. You know what I mean? Like, uh, And so filmmakers who are very used to, oh, I'm going to noodle with it on Friday. I shot it on Monday. I'll be done in a week. They want raw because they want the flexibility of noodling. But I don't think we're going to see anything like that out of Apple. I would be very surprised to see raw capture being officially supported. I think Filmic might be able to find a way to work really hard to give us raw capture. But I don't know that there's going to be a tremendous amount of benefits anytime soon out of that. I think it's way more interesting that they're giving us the ability to record multiple of those lenses at the same time into separate isolated files. I think that's super cool. And the biggest thing we always get out of Filmic is the iPhone's native noise correction for low light. I hate, uh, I really hate it. So like I would way rather record the noisy footage and noise correct it myself in Resolve or something like that. So Filmic gives you a much cleaner image, meaning less processing, that might mean a noisier image if the footage itself is actually noisy because it's very small sensors in low light. I think there's a lot of opportunities for really learning about filmmaking with the iPhone. And I think the iPhone 11 Pro is going to start giving filmmakers sort of control enough that we are obviously going to see more and more people shooting on it. And I think there's going to be certain things that work well out of iPhone educationally as like a learning tool and a practicing tool that are always going to be super useful. And if nothing else, Artemis, which is the app we all use for uh, Director's Finder, is going to be even better now that there's three lenses. So when you're zooming in to different focal lengths, Artemis will hopefully be getting better data and you'll be able to do better boards out of it. So I honestly, this is like, I'm still rocking a success, but the 11 Pro, I think in a couple of weeks here, once the furor has died down and I don't have to wait in line, I might finally upgrade and give up the old headphone port. 
All right, that's been the Week in Film Tech. We'll be back next week with more IBC news. There'll be a gear cage. There'll be another Hey Professor. Enjoy making movies between now and then, and I'm excited to hear whatever thoughts you have about what I covered today on Twitter, Facebook. Please tell your friends about the podcasts. We're growing our audience. We're actually doing really well numbers-wise. I'm, like, very excited about the audience growth, but... It would be fun if the audience grew more. Oh, and if you're in New York, I'm speaking at Adorama September 18th, I think at 5 o'clock. And I think they have a little theater there, or you can live stream it. The subject is practical visual design. All right, have fun making movies. Have fun making movies.